One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Uh, good afternoon, Chris. Good to talk to again. Um, as we always say at the beginning of every podcast, there is a lot to talk about today. Um, and I just hope we get around to half of it. But a number of things stand out as being really important to me at the moment. One is the European Central Bank's policy meeting and the pronouncements we saw from that. We got Irish inflation data. Um, and we also got comments from the CEO of Glen Dimplex about global inflationary pressures that I think are worth talking about. Uh, we have the warning from the United Nations during the week about the potential for a serious global food crisis um, that will affect hundreds of millions of people. Uh, we have the data on household savings in Ireland, which make for interesting reading. We had the OECD come out with a pretty grim outlook for the global economy. And of course, in the UK, uh, there is a lot happening on the political front, uh, particularly following the voter conference in Boris during the week. So there's a lot of stuff to get around to. I just like to kick it off by talking about the European Central Bank's meeting. Uh, coming into the meeting, there was a view that the European Central Bank would increase interest rates by a quarter of 1% in July and that it would follow with another quarter of 1% increase in September. So what we got out of the meeting this week is basically that a quarter percent increase will be delivered in July, but come September, obviously based on what's happening on the inflation front particularly, um, the increase could be larger than a quarter of 1%. And the market has interpreted this as meaning that the European Central Bank is going to deliver a half percent in September. So effectively, the ECB's base rate will go from zero 
to 75 basis points. The ECB's deposit rate will go from minus a half percent to plus a quarter. So that does represent a pretty significant tightening of interest rates in a relatively short period of time, um, albeit from historically low levels. But the backdrop to this announcement from the European Central Bank, and it really is um, strong guidance from the European Central Bank in terms of what they're likely to do. But the background to this is that um, inflation is now expected to average 6.8% in 2022. That's up from about 5.2% expectation previously. And for next year, 2023, inflation is expected to average 3.5%. That's up from a previous projection of 2.1%. So I guess 6.8% this year, 3.5% next year, uh, that is well ahead of the European Central Bank's 2% inflation target. So no surprises that they, the ECB is going to have to react pretty aggressively to that on the interest rate front. Some would argue and do argue that um, it's behind the curve significantly. And um, I suppose this is the first admission from the European Central Bank that it believes now that the situation is starting to become much more serious. And the other point about today's announcement was that uh, it has confirmed that asset purchases uh, will cease on July 1st. So we are looking at a pretty significant tightening of uh, monetary policy by the European Central Bank. Yeah, uh, Jim, I think that there is another side to this coin. I know that people naturally say that with inflation forecast to be the levels that you were suggesting there, plus the actual inflation prints that we're seeing at the moment, clearly mean that the ECB is behind the curve, as the jargon goes. But it remains the case in Europe, much more so than in the United States, and indeed perhaps even the United Kingdom, that most, if not all, of the inflation that we're seeing is all down to the supply side. And if you think about logically what that means is that they've got to kill the whole economy in order to get this supply-side inflation down. Now, there's no, there's no ECB interest rate that I could imagine that would get the oil price back down to $50, $60 a barrel. There's no ECB interest rate that I know of that will get food prices back down again. The, the idea that you are going to generate so much uh, slowdown in the economy in order to, to mitigate completely the effect of higher food and energy prices strikes me as a recipe for disaster. Now, you, the, the counter-argument is that what they're actually targeting is the inflation that is likely to leak out from energy and food price inflation into the wider economy, which there isn't an awful lot of evidence for in Europe at the moment, and they're acting preemptively. That's fine. I, I agree with that. But the idea that they are going to have to somehow or other get these inflation rates down, the only way they're going to be able to do that is to get the oil price down and to get the wheat price down and all the other food prices down. And there ain't any interest rate, any plausible interest rate that's going to do that. It's only going to be the, the end of the war in Ukraine and indeed other factors that will, will get these, these prices down. So I'm tempted to think that they're playing a very, very risky game and that uh, I understand that they've been boxed into a corner by actual inflation. It's well above target. But I'm not sure whether they've got the tools or the equipment necessary to deal with the particular type of inflation problem that they've got. They're reacting as if they've got a wage 
problem. That if inflation is being caused by wages, then yes, you raise interest rates and you depress the economy in order to depress the labour market. But if what they're doing is simply overreacting to energy and food price inflation, then they're making another classic ECB policy mistake. And I think that there is a chance that that's going to happen. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. The second thing I would say is that if Irish mortgage rates now start going up over the rest of this year going into next, a question for you, what's that going to do to the housing market? And how high do you think mortgage rates are going to have to go um, as a result of these ECB tightening schedule that we, we now know includes the probability of a half point later in the summer, early autumn? I, I, I agree with your analysis in terms of what the European Central Bank is doing. This is a supply side problem. Uh, there is very little, if any, evidence across the euro area that there is excess demand. But um, from a central banker's perspective, what they have to try and do, and I think this is what the ESB, ECB is trying to do, and indeed the Federal Reserve in the United States where the situation is different in the sense that there is more excess demand in the United States. But what both central banks and indeed other central banks around the world who are tightening policy at the moment are trying to achieve is to impact expectations. So in other words, if you can convince economic actors that you're going to take whatever necessary measures to take inflation down, that that will impact on people's expectations and that people consequently then won't look for higher rates to compensate because they believe that um, inflation will come down because of the actions of central banks. Um, I think that is an incredibly naive, dangerous strategy. And it's one that could create serious problems for the um, Eurozone economy. In terms of what it all means for the Irish housing market, uh, I would think that the European Central Bank is probably targeting a base rate of around 2% over the next 12 months or so. And it would regard that as a normal level of interest rates. Um, so a 2% increase in rates uh, would translate into a 2% increase in variable and tracker mortgage rates here in this country. Uh, but so that clearly should impact on people's affordability and should impact on house prices and the amount that people are prepared to pay for houses. A couple of things I would say about that is that um, there is still a basic lack of supply in the housing market and too much demand. There's also a significant element of cash purchasing in the Irish housing market at the moment. Estate agents around the country tell me that it's quite extraordinary the number of people that arrive in to buy a house with the full price or a significant amount of the price in cash. Um, so interest rates clearly won't affect that type of demand in the market. Um, but on balance, I'd be amazed if Irish house price inflation did not moderate significantly over the next 12 or 18 months. That's what logic would suggest should happen. But as I've said many times, and I've discovered many times to my cost over the years, uh, logic doesn't always prevail in the Irish housing market. Here in Ireland, the inflation rate for May was published today. Uh, the headline rate at 7.8%. That is the highest level since 1984, the third quarter of 1984. And back then 
inflation was published on a quarterly basis. Uh, it subsequently moved to a monthly basis. But this tells you how far back you have to go to get an inflation rate of this magnitude in Ireland. And within that, um, all of the usual culprits emanating from the Ukraine war are impacting diesel up 41.6%, petrol 25.9%, gas 57.1%, electricity 40.9%. Um, rents, rent price inflation continues to accelerate, gone up from 9.3% to 11.2%. Um, and that's another reflection of this rental crisis that we've discussed over the past couple of podcasts. Um, and um, I suppose the really interesting one, and this is one I certainly have been alluding to for some time, food price inflation has now gone up to 4.5%. Uh, that's the highest level we've seen since um, back in the early 2000s. So that 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 is obviously reflecting what's going on globally um, and the impact that the Ukraine war is having on global food surprise and so on. So inflation is certainly being driven very significantly here in Ireland by energy and indeed in Europe. But it is clear that the inflation is starting to become a bit broader and it is starting to feed into other areas of the economy. Um, and that is probably more than anything else what will drive the European Central Bank into doing what it's doing. So inflation is clearly the biggest issue out there at the moment. But I came across an interesting piece in the last 24 hours from the CEO of Glen Dimplex, which is an Irish-based company um, that focuses on consumer electrical goods um, in Ireland, the UK, China, and, and other Asian countries. So it's a company that has an incredible exposure to global supply chains. And um, its CEO, Fergal Leamy, um, who happens to hail from Waterford like myself, he warned back in February that inflation was getting out of control as far as his company was concerned and that consumers would soon feel the pinch. And of course, he was correct on that. They did. You know, at that stage, he was alluding to rising energy costs, rising shipping costs um, and other components. Um, yesterday, he came out and said that there are early signs that things are settling down in China, that supply chains are starting to behave a little bit more normally. Um, and he believes that price pressures emanating from Asia are starting to moderate. Um, and this is also consistent with what other people have been saying. Um, Paul Krugman earlier this week was writing about his belief that inflation has peaked and that is set to moderate. And I also saw that uh, the head of ARC Investment Management in the United States, a lady called Kathy Wood, she came out and said that the massive inventories held by US companies at the moment would suggest that inflation will die down over the coming months. So while we are in an inflation crisis at the moment, it continues to rise everywhere. There are certainly some straws in the wind that these inflation pressures will gradually um, alleviate over the remainder of the year. Yeah, there are some signs, tentative signs, that some of the post-pandemic uh, supply chain problems, inflation problems are starting to ease. They're very tentative at the moment. 
And um, the, people measure this in different ways, both anecdotally and there's something called a, a global supply chain pressure index. And they're all suggesting ever so slightly that there might be light at the end of the, of the tunnel. But it's all very tentative at the moment. Uh, one of the factors that we're just not sure about, of course, is what's happening in China. China is a big part of the supply chain bottleneck. The reason why some prices are going up, obviously that's a separate reason, separate to Ukraine. Um, and China, uh, one day we hear their lockdowns are easing and on another day, today for instance, they're suggesting that they're getting ready for renewed lockdowns pursuing their zero COVID strategy. So it is all very tentative and, and very, very uncertain. So, yeah, I think that uh, the ECB is in danger of making a mistake, um, but I'm prepared to cut it a bit of slack if you argue that they're acting, acting preemptively. I'm not sure they need to act preemptively because I don't think that Europe has the same inflation problem that the United States had. The United States inflation problem, absent the war in Ukraine, was caused in no small part by a combination of Trump and Biden fiscal expansion cutting taxes and increasing spending, which the Europeans did on a much, much smaller scale. The Americans overstimulated their economy, the Europeans didn't. That's why the Americans are having to move in the way that they are. So I certainly hope that the ECB is not going to emulate them. I think, for Jim, at, at risk of talking about forecasts again, that um, it won't take much of a rise in mortgage rates in both Ireland and the UK to do quite a lot of damage to the housing market, actually. Um, it may just be seen in terms of activity rather than prices, but I fancy it's going to be both. I think we've gotten used to low interest rates. I think we've gotten used to ultra-low mortgage rates. And when people's mortgage repayments start to go up again, albeit from very low levels, I think an awful lot of people are going to be unpleasantly shocked. If you combine the hit to incomes from higher mortgages with the higher uh, the hit to disposable incomes from filling your car with petrol or diesel, with the, the electricity and gas bills that you're paying, the higher food prices you're paying in your weekly shop. This is now going to be a real, real bite out of individual incomes, um, leaving not much left over for discretionary spending, if anything, particularly for, for lower income households. So I think these effects could be um, quite dramatic and, and bigger than perhaps some people are saying, but but we we shall see. Um, I would I, I would welcome that, Chris. I would love to see a significant moderation in Irish house price inflation. Um, I think it's badly needed because uh, high and rising house prices just are not good for an economy. They're not good for a society. So a correction certainly. Uh, would not go amiss at this point in this juncture. I would point out to you that in the context of Ireland, um, there some things may be a little bit different. Um, I alluded to earlier the amount of cash that's still in the market. Uh, today, from the Central Statistics Office, we got data on household savings in Ireland in the first quarter. And the household savings rate in the first quarter jumped to 19.1%. Um, that's twice the level of savings we would have seen pre-COVID. Okay, when COVID happened back in the second quarter of 2020, that savings rate went up to 33%. Um, so that, that was 
obviously distorted significantly by the fact that people were still earning but couldn't spend because this savings rate, just to make clear what it is, it is the amount of income that is not spent. Okay, and as I say, 19.1% in the first quarter. So what's happening is that there are more people at work in the Irish economy and the labour market data we got again last week, very, very positive. Average earnings are rising. That's clear across the economy. Um, but um, this growth in the number of people at work and average earnings is not being matched by growth in spending despite higher inflation. And as a consequence of that, the savings rate is rising strongly. And in April, okay, these data refer to the first quarter, but in April, central bank, more recent central bank data show that we had 144 billion in household savings sitting in the banking system, which is the highest level of savings we've ever had. So that definitely um, is something that may militate against a significant correction in Irish house prices. But uh, I, I tend to agree with you. If this market works normally, um, the move away from artificially low interest rates will come as a shock to potential house buyers. And if you combine that with the um, affordability restrictions put in place by the Euro by the Irish Central Bank, which are not about to be changed, uh, it would all point towards a moderation in the market. Yeah, and while we're on the subject of housing, uh, today Boris Johnson announced a new right-to-buy scheme. He seems to want benefit claimants and people with tiny deposits to be given the wherewithal or the right, or both, to buy their own homes, which, of course, is a very laudable aim. Everybody should have uh, the ability to buy somewhere to live if that's their choice. Uh, the thing is that I, I'm not sure how workable these plans are in practice because people who are benefit claimants and those that have tiny deposits typically have very low incomes and so their ability to to borrow if they're going to borrow standard multiples of income you know the two three four times salary thing that banks normally impose depending on the bank and the jurisdiction you're in um, two three four times not very much is still not very much and the, and the idea that they'll be able to afford an average house at least remains to be seen. But if this is a boost to housing demand, which is what helped to buy all these various schemes in both Britain and Ireland over the years, all they ever do, of course, is boost house prices because they boost housing demand without doing anything at all for housing supply. It's attacking the wrong end of the problem. And it's, it's, it's yet another... Sorry, can I just ask you, is this reminiscent of the growth of the subprime mortgage market in the States back in the late 90s, early 2000s? Some people have said that it is, that giving people, uh, they, they were called no-doc mortgages, for example, in that people didn't actually have to fill out any documents of any substance to prove any income, and therefore they, they were given huge amounts of money based on no income and no evidence of income whatsoever. And there are all those lurid stories about people who are actually dead being given mortgages and all, all that sort of thing. And that led to a wave of defaults uh, once their interest rates started to go up. Um, and it was a significant contributor to the financial crisis, which originated in the, the global financial crisis, originated in the US housing market. I can see why somebody might argue that this has shades or echoes of, of that, but I don't think it's any, anywhere near as egregious as that. I don't think that it, as a policy it will amount to very much. I can't see very many people still being able to afford to buy their own home, 
given where house prices are and where their incomes are, unless they're lent colossal sums of money, which of course is very, very risky. And I can't see the banks doing that, quite frankly, unless the government plans, unless Johnson himself plans to lend the money himself or to lean on the banks to force them. The details are a bit sketchy at this stage. It looks like another populist measure from uh, the shopping trolley. Dominic Cummings, um, for listeners, um, the the, uh, disgraced former senior advisor to Boris Johnson, describes Johnson as the shopping trolley, trying to evoke images of uh, a trolley from Tesco's or your favourite supermarket, the one with the, the, the wonky wheel, and it just bounces off walls, doesn't goes off in all sorts of random directions, and doesn't actually have any kind of direction, or in the context of Johnson and policy, any kind of strategic planning. It's, it's, it's another wizard wheeze from Johnson, from the populist school of thought, um, he's trying to buy votes. He's got two critical by-elections coming up. He's going to buy, certainly, a few headlines. And what you've got to understand about the way policy is done in the UK is that if what you announce generates good press, gets headlines in the Mail, the Express, the Sun and the Telegraph in particular, that, for this government, is job done. Um, they never need to follow through and actually do anything after that. The headline is everything. That explains, I think, an awful lot of where policy is in the UK, i.e. nowhere. Um, But this is, I think, about generating some favourable headlines ahead of some critical by-elections in an attempt to buy a few votes. And I don't think it's going to amount to a hill of beans. So, no, I don't think it will generate the kind of lending that led to a financial crisis a decade or so ago. I don't think it's going to happen again. Um, I, I think the regulator, if, if nobody else, would stop that from happening. We're, we're too alive to that possibility. But the idea that you give people, ultimately, who can't afford higher interest rates, lots of money in debt, um, it may have noble motives. Um, it probably has quite base motives in terms of populism, but it, it, it doesn't amount to a serious approach to housing. So, no, I don't think it will lead to a financial crisis. I certainly hope it doesn't. After the vote of confidence or the, the vote of no confidence in Boris during the week, however you want to describe it, uh, how do you see his position at the moment? I think that what's happened in the UK is a tragedy for the country. It's a tragedy for the Conservative Party. Um, but it's great for Labour and the Lib Dems. It's the best possible outcome for them because they, they have a completely rudderless government. They have a shopping trolley prime minister, as I said, who won't come up with any coherent economic or any indeed any other kind of strategy for, for policy, be it economic or social, uh, who will just come up with wizard wheezes like this housing one. The Northern Ireland Protocol is another example. That's a policy designed to buy off key constituent votes in the Conservative Party itself, the hardline right-wingers. Uh, and... Uh, like all of these policies, it's much talked about, but we've yet to see it. There was supposed to have been an announcement yesterday. It's been delayed for all sorts of reasons. It's not been thought through. It's been revealed that some of the legal advice that they've been given on the Northern Ireland Protocol is that it would be illegal in international law, if not British law, etc., etc. So it's the same with whatever they are doing. Johnson is in place. He's not going anywhere. It would require quite a shift now in the opinion of the Conservative Party, particularly the the Byzantine ways in which they conduct their elections of leader to get him out. Um, I see him being in place for the foreseeable future. 
um, and find it very hard now to see what would get him out. Uh, he survived this, he survived Partygate, he survived all sorts of different scandals. It, lots of his friends and ministers are resigning from his government and going to the backbenchers. Nothing affects him. He's going to stay there with all of the negative consequences that means for the country. It means the country is adrift from a policy perspective. It means the Conservative Party is in danger of disappearing up its own exhaust pipe. Um, in some ways, I think that's a good thing because they deserve everything they get from having elected this leader. They were told before he was elected what he was like. He has proven to be exactly as advertised. And whatever he does going forward, you've got to remember that the pattern always is that he does something very, very egregious. Partygate is just the latest and the longest. He's going to do something else that is going to be uh, very upsetting for certain groups of people. It's going to be probably, I think, ethically wrong, and because that's what he always does. He's going to tell more porkies, um, and I can't see it now making any difference. I think the most likely thing now is that he will lead the Conservative Party into oblivion in, into the next election. The UK will suffer, both politically, economically, and socially, and that, therefore, it will be a good thing for the um, two-thirds of people who, who never vote for no, he never voted for Johnson in the first place. This peculiar first-past-the-post-electoral system means that you get a government elected with only 30-something percent of the votes. Um, the, 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 two, the people that um, are going to be most hurt by this are a lot of the people who voted for him in the first place, and I don't think they're going to vote for him again. So unless something really strange happens to the way in which the Conservative Party conducts itself, I think that he is in situ for the foreseeable. I sincerely hope not, for the sake of the UK, um, you, you know what I think of him, Jim. We've talked on this podcast many times about what I think of this man. But uh, my hope is that he'd be gone by the end of the year. Um, I, and I can see a route to that happening. But um, at the moment, it's odds against rather than odds on. Wow, that's that's extraordinary. I, I, I would have thought that given the damage that was done to him during the week, that it would be only a question of time before he's actually removed from office um, or as leader of the Tory party at least. I, 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 felt, I certainly felt he'd be gone by Christmas, so I'm surprised to hear you say that he is likely to lead the Tories into the next general election. He uh, should be gone of by Christmas. Jim, he should be gone yeah. by Christmas. By all mm. uh, logic, reason... Uh, any kind of rational analysis of the political and economic situation facing the UK, he should be gone now, and definitely should be gone by Christmas. It's that mechanism to get him out. I can't see um, a realistic um, possibility of it happening because it requires uh, the Cabinet in particular to stand up to this man, and they have shown uh, no appetite for doing that whatsoever. When Theresa May was uh, faced her vote of no confidence, which she won by more than Johnson did, but nevertheless there was a significant vote against her, uh, the men in grey suits, as, as they're called in the UK, approached her and said that we will change the rules whereby the leader of the Conservative Party is elected if you do not name your leaving date. And she acquiesced. She said, OK, I'm gone. I'll give you that leaving date. That sort of thing just doesn't happen with Johnson for all sorts of reasons. The main one being is that he's a bully. And they know the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, for instance, who's in charge of these rules, knows 
that Johnson will take his revenge on him and that he has a lot of history of taking out his anger on people. He's purged the Tory party of anybody that could be tainted with the label Remainer, for example, when it comes to Brexit. All of those MPs have gone, not just uh, out of work from the cabinet, but they're gone from the House of Commons. It's an old-fashioned Stalinist purge. They know what he does. He takes revenge. He's a bully. And so far, nobody in the Conservative Party, in the cabinet in particular, has shown any willingness at all to stand up to him. It's a bit like those two senators in the US who um, stood up to Trump over the attempted coup in um, January of last year. Uh, you might remember um, um, McCain's daughter is one of them. I've forgotten the name of the other one. Only two Republicans have been willing to stand up to him. And they have, they're about to be purged from the Republicans. Within a short space of time, they're going to be Republicans no more. Uh, certainly from a, a member of the, the Congress and the Senate point of view, that they, they will be gotten out as soon as possible. That's what it's like in the UK at the moment. No, no, just as nobody is willing to stand up to Trump, despite all his egregious wickedness, nobody is willing to stand up to Johnson. If there were some good men and women in the Conservative Party who I could identify as being willing to stand up to the schoolyard bully, I would say, yes, you're right, he'll be gone. But because I can't think of anybody that has the moral courage to take a risk with their career and stand up to the man, they're all they're all debasing themselves in, in, in front of Johnson, just as the, the Republican Party is debasing itself in front of Trump. Um, just as Trump is coming back, Johnson will survive. Okay, okay, that's 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 fascinating. Um, uh, today, uh, the congressional hearings begin in the United States on the. January 6th um, storming of Congress. Um, it, it remains to be seen whether that will do any damage to Trump either, no more than Partygate has done any real damage to Boris. Uh, it's an amazing political spectrum when we get two people like that in such positions of power. And um, I think it would probably take a lot to come out of those congressional hearings to actually um, negatively impact on Trump's ability to stand again in 2024. I hope I'm wrong, but uh, I find it hard to see him being blown off track at this stage. Um, it's probably time to wrap, Chris. I just leave with two thoughts from my perspective, uh, because I don't want to be accused again of not covering everything that we said we're going to cover. Um, yesterday, Antonio Guterres, the chief of the United Nations, came out and warned that hundreds of millions of people would be at risk of hunger and destitution because of food shortages. And meanwhile, down in the uh, Black Sea, we continue to see the inability to ship grain. Uh, Turkey is trying to mediate um, whatever that means in that context, but uh, apparently no progress is being made in terms of the Russians agreeing to allow the shipping of grain in the Black Sea, um, unless sanctions against Russia end, which ain't going to happen. Uh, the second thing I would allude to is that the latest OECD economic outlook this week made for pretty sobering reading. It says that the world economy will pay a hefty price for war in Ukraine through weaker growth, higher inflation 
and long-lasting damage to supply chains. So that's a sobering thought. And I think that kind of sums up very well the challenge that the European Central Bank has at the moment um, on a day that it revises down its growth projections, revises up its inflation projections. It's telling us that interest rates are going to be tightened aggressively over the coming months. We live in a very strange world. Indeed, Jim. As you say, we should wrap it there on those sober thoughts. So thanks again, mate. Thank you very much, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 